Welcome everybody to the Banyan Books podcast in conversation. Today, my guest is Red Hawk. I'll be giving him an introduction in a moment, but first I'll just make a few announcements. My name is Ross McKeechee. I'm your host. And I want to let everybody know first that even though we're joining from different parts of the world, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Kitsilano in Vancouver is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. That includes the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Lautooth nations. So we give thanks to those nations for having us as guests on their land. Banyan Books just finished its 50th year of business as an independent bookstore. So that's something to celebrate and just letting everybody know we're open from 11 to 7 every day of the week at West 4th and Dunbar in Kitsilano. Or you can purchase books online at our website, banyan.com. That's B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Or you can also order by email, by emailing orders at banyan.com. That's orders at banyan.com. Or you can phone in your order toll-free from Canada or the USA at 1-800-663-8. Four four two. That's one eight hundred six six three eight four four two. Banyan Books has been Canada's leading spiritual and healing resource since nineteen seventy. That's in our fifty first year as an independent bookstore. Okay, on to the introduction. I'm really excited for our guest today. His name is Red Hawk. He is an award-winning author of eight poetry collections and two nonfiction spiritual self-help books. Some of his works, like Self-Observation, have been translated into 11 languages. Today, he is here to discuss with us, among other topics, his latest book of poems, which is titled The Law of the Land. It was published in 2020 by Obeyed Publishing in the U.S., The late William Packard said of this book, these poems are desperately important to us all today because Red Hawk has that rarest of all virtues. Virgil had it, Dante had it, Shakespeare had it, a sense of civilization, something most of us have forgotten all about. So everybody, please join me in welcoming our guest, Red Hawk. Red Hawk, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Ross. Now, I believe we're going to start today with you reading the title poem, The Law of the Land. This title poem sets both tone and mood and theme for this book, which is an investigation of the human species relationship to the earth. And so the book is organized um, in a way that speaks to that historical relationship to the earth. This is the title poem, The Law of the Land. The lay of the land and the play of the hand operate under the same principle. You play 
what is dealt you. It shapes your life by what is given and what is taken away. The voice of the land is in the crow and the wind in the tree, in the creek and the tumbled stone, which is shaped by the shifting currents, the torrent and the dwindling trickle. What is removed, worn down, worn away, leaves what is left, what is necessary, that which nothing need be added to nor taken from. The land grinds fine, boulder to pebble, then to grain of sand, then to dust blown by the wind. The land gives, it takes away. You may fight or yield, plow or allow the field to lie fallow, cut your own path or follow the watercourse way. It is all the same. First, the land will tame you. Then it will claim what belongs to it. The fool believes he owns the land. The wise man knows he is owned and all that he has is loaned. This poem, Ross, seems especially potent and important right now because what we are experiencing as a species is first the land will tame you and the COVID and climate change and the immense climate events, catastrophic climate events which are happening all over the earth are in fact the land taming us and claiming what belongs to it. So that poem has a lot of resonance for me right now. Wow, absolutely. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful um, context for us to understand. I'm, I'm struck by this poem as well, uh, how much certain lines remind me of Lao Tzu's The Tao Te Ching, which I know you have been a student of for a long time. Particularly yeah, the line, what is necessary, that which nothing need be added to nor taken from. Definitely Lao Tzu. Um, in fact, the trilogy of uh, spiritual practice uh, I wrote, uh, self-remembering one book, self-observation is, the, is the second. And the third book in the trilogy is called Return to the Mother, a Lover's Handbook. And that's poems of self-remembering and self-observation that are inspired by Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. And each the title of each of the 95 poems in that book is, is a line from the Tao Te Ching. And then the poem is a response. So it's Lao Tzu and I carrying on a conversation together. Right. And you, you were sort of, I remember reading that you were sort of, you came upon or felt like you were given a, a format, which was a 16 line 
format for each one of those poems. That's right. Uh, I, I didn't plan it. It was given to me. In fact, the whole book is, is, was given to me by inspiration and revelation. And uh, this conversation that, that uh, one carried on with Lao Tzu over thousands of years was a, a real revelation to me. Each, each poem is 16 lines, yeah. And uh, the, each poem is a response to what Lao Tzu has written, one of his sutras. Wonderful. Now, what was the, the inspiration or revelation that read, that led to the writing of your latest book of poems, The Law of the Land? This book has been in the works for at least 10 years, maybe longer. Um, it's the structure of the book is in three parts according to what the work calls the law of three. Part one, holy affirming. It's a, it's a, the moral code of the Lakota Sioux Plains Indian tribe. Holy denying is part three, the Indian killer. Also a moral code. Two very different moral codes derived from their relationship to the earth and through the suffering of, of their lives on the, on the earth. The middle part, the reconciling part, is the earth's moral code. And the earth's moral code is the, is the one that has the final say always. It's the mother spirit, which unites all opposites. So the inspiration, as you asked me for this book, has always been um, one, um, when I was many, many years ago, 45 years ago, I, I divorced and was separated from my daughters, whom I love dearly, whom I adore. And it broke me as a human being. It broke me such that I didn't know how I could go on living. And in my brokenness, I turned to the earth. And for guidance, for nurturing, for support, for help, for teaching. And the earth's response was extremely generous. The earth saved my life. And it taught me. My prayer to the earth was two things. One, show me the right way to live and how to be a decent human being. And two, show me my real name. So the name Red Hawk is my earth name. It's not an Indian name. Many people confuse that. It's an earth name given to me by the earth. Um, at some point after I divorced and, and was separated from my daughters, I drove in, an, in the worst ice storm Arkansas had seen in many, many years. In the dead of winter, I drove to the Buffalo River, really the only car on the road most of the time. I set up my camp next to the river, which was frozen. And for four days, I did a water fast. And I prayed, and I wept, and I begged for revelation. And uh, on the fourth day, uh, two red-tailed hawks landed on the oak tree next to my tent. And then at dawn, the mountain across, right across the river from me, the sun coming up 
behind the mountain, these two red-tailed hawks flew right into the sun. And that's where I got my name. That's how the earth answered me. And you'll see that sign on all of my books on the front, the, the sun rising behind the mountain, two red-tailed hawks flying into the sun. That's, yeah. that's the sign that I use. So my love of the earth inspired this book, and also my deep devotion to the Native American way of life and to their spiritual practices. Um, I have had that since I was a very small child. Um, when we played cowboys and Indians in my neighborhood, I was always the Indian. Mm-hmm. And I had an Indian outfit that my mother had gotten me when I was very little, and I used to wear, want to wear it to bed, and she wouldn't let me, and it would make me cry. <laughs> so there is that. And uh, that's another inspiration for the book. The Indian killer came later, and he introduced himself to me, as, and it was, a, again, a, a great surprise to me. He began to speak to me and through me, and I began to take, take it down, what he had to say. And he spoke in a very particular voice. It sounded like this. He was an old man. He was 99 years old. And that's, that's how his voice sounded. And when I read a section from that, uh, from the Indian killer section, I'll, I'll read, I'll, I'll use his voice. Yes. So many, and then, and then there's also my spiritual practice, which is, uh, I have, uh, my root guru was Osho Rajneesh, and my guru now is Mr. Lee Lazowick and his uh, master, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. So, and then I, I, I would be lax if I didn't mention uh, Mr. Gurdjieff, who's had an enormous influence on me, and I've been in that work for many, many years, too. So there's a lot of Spiritual influences, you mentioned Lao Tzu, but there's the earth. And the earth has been, is my mother and is my guide and is my moral support. So this, is a, this book is a moral history of the human species and their relationship to the earth. Yes. Now, just taking, taking from the back of the book, the, the highlighted large text at the top on the back of the description of this book says we live in an immoral age and then it goes on to say humanity suffers from quote unquote nature deficit disorder now what you described as going going down by the buffalo river doing a four-day water fast in an ice storm praying and asking and crying for revelation how many people are doing that and is is the lack of this kind of uh, prayer and connection with the earth, a huge part of the current sickness of humanity. I had a, a, one of my other spiritual teachers was a Lakota Sioux shaman whose name was Oyate Shunkawakan Washte. It means good horse nation. And, and one of the first teachings he gave us was, he said to me very early on, Red Hawk, a human who doesn't bond with the earth goes crazy. The human race is crazy. The human race is on a suicide course. We have lost all touch with the earth. You know, I walk all over town here where I live in a little town in Arkansas. And I never see children playing outside. Where are the children? I know very well they're inside in front of a screen lit up. And it is destroying 
are we have no connection with the earth. We've lost it. We raped the earth. We pillaged the earth in our greed. We we are draining the earth dry. So the earth is beginning to respond to us in a very definite way. We have got the earth's attention. And the earth is is instructing us with the COVID, with the climate change, with all the radical climate events which are happening all over the earth. And we now see Texas is is a third world nation all of a sudden. Uh, And the people are going without food, without water, no electricity. They're freezing to death. And, you know, it, it is the loss of contact with the earth, which means we have lost our conscience. We've lost our connection with our heart. We've lost our connection with who we are. This book, The Law of the Land, is meant to call attention to that and to give a, attention to a moral code which by which we are meant to be living, which is the code of the earth, our mother. Yes. Now, may I ask if we can delve into another poem, um, which is from book one, uh, on the, the Lakota Sioux's uh, way and law. And, and I just, I wanted to mention, before we read this one, the, the title of the poem is called how the Lakota tamed their wayward sons. And maybe after you read it, we can talk about parents and how they can, it's a challenging situation for parents having to navigate this technological world and how to manage their children when parents don't even have a connection to the earth themselves. So maybe we can delve into that after you share this poem. I have a very good friend, a close friend, whose name is Rafa Mathuna, who lived with the Lakota for a long time, nine months or more. And what he said about this section of the book was that Red Hawk, you said, you have captured the Lakota's sense of humor exactly. Hmm. Uh, I love their sense of humor because it's always dry and understated and, and all related to the earth. So this is how the Lakota tamed their wayward sons It's from part one, the code of the Lakota. Each spring at gelding time, the Lakota men gathered all of the bad boys, those whose sap was at the boil and overflowing without control. And they took them among the horses, sorting out those who did not respond to proper training to be gelded. They held the horse and yelled at it, you will not do as you are told. And then strong men held them down while the task of two bad boys was to take wet rawhide and loop it around the horse's balls, drawing it tight as another boy cut and sliced with a sharp knife or finely honed clamshell from the Great Lakes. At the end of this ritual, the men roasted their spoils and ate them with relish, offering some to the young boys who would often refrain. The Lakota never had any trouble with their sons. (laughs) One of the means 
of parenting among the Lakota was to always link instruction to the earth. So one of the things they did, and one of the medicines that I was given was I was given feather medicine and stone medicine as two of my practices. When the child, so the mother and the father always carried with them in a small pouch their medicine stone, prayer stone. And they would pull this stone out and let the child play with it, put it in its mouth to taste it and to to feel it. And it became to the child, as to the parents, a sacred object and, and an object of great fascination. At a certain age, and roughly age five or six, the parents would take the child to the stream, to the water, and and begin the hunt for their own stone. The child would try many stones and, and uh, would hold them and uh, discard them, and then would select one that it felt in itself, in its being, was suitable to its own being. And then they would take this, and the father would make out of deer hide or, 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 or buffalo hide a pouch the mother would beat it and decorate it, and this would be the child's stone. So in this way, they began the instruction of bonding with the earth. Each day, when the child and the parents arose, they would go to the door of the lodge, they would face the sun, they would take some cornmeal or some tobacco, uh, and they would put a little on the earth, they would face the sun and say, Hokahe. Hokahe means it's a good day to die in Lakota. And in this way, they would teach the child reverence for the earth, for the sun, and for their own death. And they, they were very open about the, the, their deaths, because this allowed them to be slow to judge and quick to forgive. So their teaching was always in practice, not just words, but in practice, and then followed by words. One of the problems we have is that, number one, we, we, we think that the teaching has to come from us instead of from the earth and from, from God through the earth. And we, we use words instead of actions. And, and so when there's, a, when there's a separation between words and actions, the child always pays attention to the actions. And so if my actions don't match my words, and with most people they don't, then it's the actions which count. Yes. And there's the other a... thing about the other thing about the Indians, I'm sorry, Ross, the other one other thing I wanted to say, the Indians held their children all the time. In fact, for the newborn, the newborn never left contact with its matrix, which was its birth mother. For two years. She carried the, the, the infant on her back or between her breasts and never lost contact with its matrix for the first two years. What do we do with our young? We put them in a nursery the minute they're born, and they lose contact with their mother. And and so, you see, when you lose contact with your matrix, you become frightened. And we've lost contact with the earth, which is our great matrix. We're a frightened race, and our fear manifests in in the way we treat one another, the way we treat the earth. Yes, absolutely. 
They held their children constantly. The father would hold and kiss his children, his boys, as, no matter how old they were. The father would hold and kiss his boy. And, and he, when he became a man, say, it never stopped. We don't do that. We don't hold our children enough. We put them in child care. It's heartbreaking to see that contrast in the way we're living and what is possible and so simple. So simple. Now, the, the, the third section of the book about the Indian killer, he is, he is from the white man's world. And yet he is not really part of that world fully. He's kind of like in between. Is that true? Yeah, I like that. That's right, Ross. How did, how did, how did he come about? You said he started speaking to you and he has a very distinct voice. As you said, like, like he began speaking to you. Um, how, how did, how did his, life take form was there any reality was there a real life character at all that it was based on or was it purely from inspiration well so the one question that that people should never ask a, a writer and all they always do is uh did this really happen is this person real and my answer always is the same it's true even if it didn't happen ah so okay. The Indian killer lives. He began to speak to me on my power spot on a mountain north of Little Rock. And he, the first poem, the first time he spoke to me, was the first poem of this old, old man, this grizzled, coarse, rough customer, began to speak to me um, as if he were being interviewed. And the first poem in this section was the first time he spoke to me. It was in a visionary moment. Um, I was on the mountain. I was in my power spot. And um, two things happened. Number one, as I was sitting on the flat balance stone, a large flat boulder, I heard a rustle. Uh, just outside the clearing where the stone was and a fox came into the clearing and I stayed really still and the fox stayed there for a moment. And then the fox looked right up at me. And when it saw me, it took off into the trees and this voice, I, I spoke in this voice. Well, that was something, wasn't it? That was really something there. That was no fox. That voice. Yeah. And so then I began to, uh, I, had a, I had a little notebook and a, and a pen with me, and I began to write down what 
that voice was telling me. Uh, I think maybe I'll read um, one poem from that section, and then we'll talk more about him. Uh, this is called The Indian Killer Talks About Death. So the voice, the first voice you hear is this young woman who is interviewing the Indian killer in his 99th year. And, and her voice appears throughout asking him questions. And then the poem unfolds from the questions she asked. So the Indian killer talks about death. So you don't fear dying? He is asked. Shit. You might just as well be scared of the sun rising. He hacks and spits, wipes. It's everywhere. If a bullet don't get you, then old age will. I'd have rather a bullet, but that's not how my dick was cut. Bullet's easy. Old age is mean and nasty. Good nor bad don't matter a damn to death. I seen the good suffer, and that little chicken shit liar Cody got away scot-free. Death's like a hungry crow scouring the land, looking for something to eat, devouring everything. Always hungry, never satisfied, always looking. A crow don't care what it is or where it's been, he'll eat it. There was a tribe of crow engines, horse thieves. That's what death is, a thief. It'll take everything you own right out from under your nose, and can't you nor nobody, stop it. They've some call me a killer. The way I see it, death is the killer. I'm just in his service. If not me, death will find another boy. There's always someone looking to serve. We don't own nothing. Death owns us. Death will say to your face what no man would dare to speak. Him that owns, don't worry about them that rents. Sure. I had, I've had some interesting responses to this section, some really sensitive responses. Right. One of my friends, Heather, said to me, you know, you start out being really repulsed by this man, and, and he wins your sympathy and compassion as you move along here. <clears throat> he is not insensitive. He, he has known love. He loved a, a half-breed woman, a half-Lakota Sioux, half-white. He calls her the whore. She was a bar whore. But he loved her, and she loved him in a way that he was never used to and had never seen before. So he has learned through the horror of what he's done. 
through what he was able to do and what he wasn't able to do. He has come to a resolution about life and an understanding of life, and death has been a part of his life all his life, his whole life. The first part of the book, uh, his, his dog, who he loved as a little boy, his name was Butch. His father shot the dog because the dog got into the hens. <clears throat> into, he got, got after the rooster. Death has been a part, and his ma died when he was very young. So he's learned to let death instruct him. And he learned from, from the Indians that he was sent to kill. After the Indian time was over and the reservation period started, he joined up with Cody's Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show and became close friends with Chief Sitting Bull. And they loved one another. And he, he said at one point in the book that he was, Sitting Bull was about the best friend he ever had. And it was ironic to him because he was an Indian. So that's one moral code derived from, from a, a close proximity to death and from being a dealer of death. And it's in contrast to the Lakota Sioux, but there is a mutuality in their moral code. That is, they begin all, each of them, to live in a way which is moral. One from birth and one from from uh, experience. You mentioned Sitting Bull, and it's almost like Sitting Bull's character in this in this uh, story, if you will, plays like a, a bridging factor. His he honors and respects the Indian killer and sees him as a warrior brother. He sees him for what he is, something that the white men characters in the book don't see in him all the other white characters have nothing but disdain for him it seems maybe not all of them but sitting bull who's lakota himself who's many of his people were killed by this man actually has the the greatest admiration for him sitting bull appears in all three sections in the in the first section <clears throat> he's the one who is the chief and and the the war chief and the peace chief as well. He's sitting bull was one of those rarest of creatures that that was both a holy man and a chief. Very rare. In in the middle section, which is about the earth, he appears as a seer. And a seer in the tribe was was the was the was the receiver of visions. Could be man or woman the holy person. They would get visions which, in, which would instruct the tribe on which direction to go, where to travel, when to travel, what would happen in battle, what, what uh, their direction was in life. And so it turns out that, that Sitting Bull is a seer, and in the last section, the Indian killer, he is one of the only two people that sees the Indian killer for what he is. The other one is his, is his uh, beloved, his wife, uh, the uh, bar whore, whose name is Moon Woman, Elizabeth Joyce Moon Woman, half half white, half Indian. And uh, the, the rest of them, it's interesting in the last part of the book because each character speaks 
about what they saw the Indian killer to be, and they all talk about their version of it according to their own who they are, and it didn't, none of them get him right at all. She gets him exactly right. Sitting Bull sees one part of him, which is the warrior part. She sees his heart. And so you get those two aspects from from him as about him as well. But he, he is, I don't know that there's another character like him in all of American poetry. Uh, he's, he's unique and has a lot to teach in his own way. Absolutely. There's something about his, his brokenness that is, that is taught him well, his, through his suffering and his acceptance of, I guess, his role in the world. He has had to suffer his role in the world, and it's humbled him. And, and you know, the signs of remorse appear. Mm. He clearly has a conscience. And I, I like you mentioning his brokenness. It is his brokenness which has instructed him and made him ultimately who he is. It's that brokenness which has birthed in him the seed of conscience. And, and he has remorse for many things, um, which is extremely rare. And I think it's that brokenness and remorse which makes him ultimately a sympathetic character. Yes. Yes. Now, moving towards the second section, the second part of the book, which is the law of the land, the earth's natural law, the earth requiem. It, it's the bridge between the, the Lakota and the Indian killer. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, how did you come to this this form how, uh what what's the story behind the the two seemingly opposing forces and this bridge between the two well <clears throat> the the earth poems came years ago uh four of them the, the, the poems about the wolf and the dog, they came years ago. And then they stayed in my notebook and, and in the first book I ever published for, or the second book for, for many years. Little by little, then many years later, more began to be added until finally it, it arrives at this section, which is 10 poems about the earth. But I, this, this, the poems about the Lakota were all separate from everything else. The Indian killer was separate from everything else, and these poems were separate. And it took me 10 or 12 years to see the shape of this book that all these poems belong together. And it took me a long, long time to put them together and to find where they belonged in relationship to each other. And uh, this, the, the, the middle section, the, the reconciling or bridge between the other two 
is called The Secret Teachings of the Forest. And you might be interested to know that that title is what, what, what was the title of the Upanishads. Yes. The Upanishads were a collection of the teachings of masters who were called in the ancient tradition the forest philosophers. And the secret teachings of the forest was the name of the Upanishads, one of the oldest extant sacred teachings. Um, the Vedas and the Upanishads are the oldest extant sacred texts that we have thousands and thousands of years old. So each of these poems in that section begins with something which is like a teaching from the Upanishads. Halfway through, there is an echo of that teaching of the Upanishads, another one line to begin, and one line in the middle. And then the last line of the poem, again, all alone, is, a, is a, like a culmination of that teaching. Maybe I'll read you the last poem in that section, which is called Earth Requiem. And it's interesting that these are called Requiem, because... The first section, the Lakotas, Dakota the Lakota is called the Requiem of Innocence. The last section, the Indian Killer, is called the Requiem of Experience. And of course, that um, is an echo as well of um, the great English poet uh, who wrote. The songs of innocent, uh, songs of experience, William Blake. Mm. So this is Earth Requiem. It's the last poem in that section. Begins with the uh, Upanishadic quote, one line in the middle, Upanishadic quote, and at the end, the summation, Upanishadic summation. Earth Requiem. Only good will come of this. In time, the forest roots begin to sprout. The pools that remain in riverbeds hold trout, and the fire that consumed all burns out. Once the humans flee, the animals return gratefully. Some nest in the green tree which is tender of limb and leaf, not steady yet in the wind, thrown about by rain and bent double like an old man in pain. Still, it lightens like a ship in a storm-tossed sea, and the earth knows in its organic memory how to regain the sacred, delicate harmony the gospel according to the stones, the book of trees, the psalms of the river God. No despair. The wind is its breath, the rain its rhythmic singing. In one hand it holds death, in the other the flock birds winging and a stillness comes over the land all things pass away bringing 
rich lot to the fertile forest soil. No grief attends to the season of the fallen leaf. No mourning the death of the two-legged thief lost in an old dark shadow. The deeper the debt, the steeper the payment, the land does not forget. It always collects what is owed, first slowly, then all at once the world implodes. There is no need for despair. You see how carefully that poem is rhymed, too. That's another amazing thing to me about these poems. How, especially in that earth section, how the poems have such a beautiful song quality. They sing and they rhyme, and there's an eloquence about them that is unlike anything else. In the, it's a different kind of eloquence. That They're all eloquent, but this one is different in that way. Yes, yes. I love, uh, it's, it's so apparent that there's no sense of ownership for you around any of these poems. It's, it's very clear to me that your, your understanding is that you've been gifted these and that they're, they come through you and, and you're looking on them freshly almost every time you read them. It's true that it, it's, it's wonderful that you say that, Ross. Every time I read them, they're a surprise to me. I feel deeply humbled by them. They teach me. I, I, I read the lines that I just read to you um, about the humans lost in an old dark shadow. The deeper the debt, the steeper the payment. Boy, we owe. Our debt is huge, and our payment is becoming steep. Half a million of us are dead just from the coronavirus. And then it goes on, the land does not forget. It always collects what is owed. First slowly, then all at once, the world implodes. And what, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the world imploding right now before our eyes. And we're seeing the land beginning to collect what is owed. Mm -hmm. And it starts slowly, and then it picks up speed. And then, and then, it, and then in a flash, flashpoint, everything implodes. We are rapidly approaching that flashpoint as a species. We aren't powerful enough to destroy the earth, but we are powerful enough to destroy the earth's ability to support human life, and that's what we're doing. The steeper the pain, the deeper the debt, the steeper the payment. We will pay, our children will pay, my grandchildren, God bless those boys, they're going to pay a terrible price for our ignorance. And I, I don't claim ownership of these poems. In fact, all the poems I've written, when they're at their best, they are gifts. And I, the way that I write is I place myself in the feminine mode. That is, I know how to access the feminine in me finally I've been shown that through years of spiritual practice and the feminine, the mother spirit has awakened in me. It is awakening, not has awakened as if it's a done thing. It's, it's ongoing. And that mother spirit then is a spirit of receptivity. The feminine is receptive. 
And I allow myself in that mode to be penetrated by higher forces, higher centers, higher forces. And they instruct me. And then I write them down. And many times they'll instruct me in a way that I write it down clean and I have very few changes. But sometimes it's gracious and, and compassionate and allows me, it gives me a rough draft. And then I have the beautiful opportunity to revise. And I love the revision process because I am a, a work of art. And so are you. So is everybody listening. And I am in the process of being revised by God and by the earth and by my guru and by the forces greater than me. And so revision allows me to re-enter the inspirational moment and, and receive new insight and help to rework the poem. And, and, you know, these poems that are rhymed and they're even, all, even, the, even the Indian killer poems, many of them are rhymed. Some of them are rhymed. The Lakota poems, some of them are rhymed. I love the rhyme because the rhyme opens up the doorway to surprise. If I rhyme in a poem, then I can't follow a, a fixed idea that I had before I began to write because the rhyme demands that I, I come to the next line and it has to agree with the rhyme before it or two or three lines before. And so then all of a sudden it opens up into new territory and surprise and I have to follow it. And so there you get this inspiration and intuition entering again. Wonderful. And I, I love the line at the start of this. And, and despite this, you start with the line, only good will come of this, which is beautiful. And you and I shared a moment on the phone leading up to the, this interview uh, where we had, uh, there was a situation we both agreed, well, only good will come of this. And you spoke about your guru, Lee Lozowick, um, using that term, only good will come of this. And then in, in the poem you end with, there's no need for despair. So dis even despite this great debt that we're accumulating, that the earth will claim, still only good will come of this. this. Still, there's no need for despair. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, thank you. Everything that occurs, everything that is, is from God and is God. There's only God. And so everything is spooling out in perfect order. And it doesn't matter if, if the human species doesn't survive because good, great good will come from everything. The earth will be regenerated as it did as indicated in that poem. New life will come forward. And in all of us, because we come from the divine, in every single one of us, our basic nature is goodness. This is Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche who says only goodness. We are only goodness. So in the worst of us, we are at our basic nature is goodness, covered over by a lifetime of, of 
suffering and bad teaching, but still there. So despair simply means that I do not place myself in the present moment, which is where love exists. Love is a present phenomenon only. And so when I, by a lifetime of practice, learn to be present, that is attention placed on bodily sensation, sensing the breath, sensing the whole body, relaxing the body, attention moved downward from the mind, from the head brain into the body, down to the abdomen, the solar plexus, that region. And one begins to live from down lower in the body. Then what happens is that the world opens up to me and I have eyes to see. And what I begin to see is the miraculous is taking place every single moment before my eyes. But I have to be present to receive this energy, this ability to see. And in all of us, that ability is blocked by negative emotion. We are the slaves of negative emotion. So one of the first tasks that work on self is to not express negative emotion. So that when I receive impressions, everything I receive is an impression. Five senses and, and thought, emotion, action, everything is an impression. When I can receive impressions without judging them, without reacting to them, but simply allowing that energy to move through me without interference, then only good comes from that. Good arises from that. The energy is love, which radiates then from the human form. Only love, only goodness. And you see, we come from love. You know, I love the good master, Jesus. I, I'm not Christian, but I love that good master. And his, one of the most profound teachings he gave, which has changed my life and, and I, it's directed my life, is he, his explanation of what God is, is the simplest and most profound that I've ever found. Three words, God is love. Love and God are the same. So we come from love. We are constantly receiving energy from above in the form of love. It gets interfered with, and our personal history and our, our call it ego, or you can call it personality, interferes with that receptivity and colors it, perverts it, distorts it, so that it matches my suffering, my sorrow, my personal history, my terror, but it comes in pure. And if I can remain present with breath, with sensation, with relaxation, then it passes through me. The body transforms it. It comes out in a finer, finer form, which we can call compassion. We can call it love. We can call it wisdom. We can call it the feminine, like that. That's a great question, Ross. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, it is perfectly we've perfectly bridged into your your books on on spiritual practice uh the practice of self-remembering and self-observation 
And if I may ask you, I mean, you've, you've, you've already given an introduction to that for our audience. Um, I'll just, for, for people's knowledge, the, the, maybe you can first tell us the story of, of how you came to write these, these books. There's a trilogy, self-observation, <laughs> self-remembering, and then the book of poetry you mentioned earlier, Return to the Mother, a lover's handbook. And there's a story I understand about Lee Lozowick giving you this assignment. Well, that's a good story. You've been doing your homework and people have been um, ratting me out. Uh, so <laughs> I won't name any names. <laughs> so every year when Mr. Lee was alive, we would go to the ashram and spend a week or 10 days. And uh, at one point after... Uh, uh, a while uh, after many years of practicing self-observation, uh, a group of young men and uh, two women um, had, we, we'd established a little group online, um, study group, just working with self-observation. And uh, before I engaged in, in sort of caretaking that group, sponsoring it, I asked Mr. Lee, and he said, he gave me permission to do it. He said, but, but every once in a while, send me something from uh, what you've been doing so that I can keep track of it and see. So I did. I would send him every once in a while. So then, so one, one time we went to the ashram. It was the end of May. In fact, the last day of May. Just before we were about to leave, we were in Tavern. Tavern is an ancient Sufi tradition and even older than that, where the students gather with the guru in a sacred space and uh, they're waited on by other students. Um, we would have tea or chai. We would have delicacies like uh, dates or uh, sometimes a bit of chocolate uh, like that. So, and then a uh, uh, Mr. Lee, when we walked into the tavern and bowed to him who was sitting there, he would motion a few of us to come sit in a half circle around, around him. So it was always a real honor to be in that half circle too. And then the other students would be in uh, circles, uh, two other circles in the room. Anyway, I was in that half circle and, and then um, one of his closest senior students at some point in that Tavern said to me, Red Hawk, we have an idea for a book for you. And when she said the word we, uh, nobody was fooled by that. Uh, we all knew exactly who was speaking and, and whose idea it was. Uh, it was my gurus. And, she, and I said, oh, really, what would that be? And she said, we think that it would be interesting if you wrote a book about self-observation. And I immediately without hesitation said yes. And the reason I said yes immediately was that I had learned through terrible suffering to not hesitate when the guru gave me something. And the way I learned that was years before, when my younger daughter was getting married in San Francisco, we had been at the ashram for 10 days. We were getting ready to go to the wedding in San Francisco and Mr. Lee came up to me after uh, one meal 
and said, I understand you're going to San Francisco. Yes, I said. He said, um, would you take some books uh, to some people in San Francisco? I said, yes, sir, but. And it didn't matter what happened after the but because I never saw the books and he never mentioned it again. Oh. So there was... And that caused me enormous suffering, great remorse of conscience. It broke my heart. Hmm. So I learned. So when he said, we think you ought to write a book on self-observation, I immediately said yes. And then immediately following that yes, my mind began to compile the list of 10,000 reasons why it was impossible. (laughs) But I I was already committed so then I said to him, all right, sir, uh, how, about how long should the book be? He said, well, about 100 pages or so. And he said, it ought to be the kind of book where if a rank amateur who'd never practiced this practice before read it, they would get great help. And if a senior student who'd been practicing for years read it, they would get help. Oh, yeah, okay. So, all right, thank you, I said. And then I, I asked him of, um, about how long... Well, I have, and, and I was hoping you would, you know, I was thinking, well, if I have four or five years, maybe I can cobble something together because I, I have no idea how I could ever do a book like this. I said, so this is, mind you, this is the last day of May. He turns to his senior editor of, of the home press, Dacia. He says, Dacia, when will you need this book for next year's list? Dacia said, we ought to have a manuscript by August, the first week in August. Oh. Well, uh, of course, the mind was went in immediately into terror uh, and began to relate to me how it was impossible. But I said, okay. Now, it turns out that we were leaving the ashram, and we'd already pan- planned a trip east to North Carolina and Pennsylvania for the, all of June. So, I mean, all of July, rather. So that left me June to write the book. I went home. I sat down in front of the, I don't have a computer, but I did have a laptop, which is not hooked up to the internet. I still don't have a computer, but I have this laptop. I sat down in front of it, and I began to pray. And uh, I, I begged for help. All right, so here's what happened. The first thing that came to me, and it came in a flash. So clearly it was coming from higher intellectual and higher emotional center. Was the table of contents of this book. 20 chapters. In order. And I wrote them down in order. First this, 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 all 20 chapters. And it began to dawn on me, oh, all right, here's 20 chapters. It means about five pages. I can write a little five-page essay on each one of these subjects. I think I can do that. And then I had this second brilliant revelation. Okay, I'm going to begin each chapter with a quote from some sacred text. I'm going to end each chapter with one of my poems. That means about four pages. And that's going to be doable. (laughs) By the end of June, we had a a rough draft, and so we took it on our trip with us, and I would read it aloud to Chandrika, my wife, and she would begin to make uh, suggestions, and we would correct and work with the rough draft. By the end of July, when we returned home, I had 
the book pretty much as it is now and sent it off to the press to be published, thinking, ah, this is the end of it. Well, it wasn't even beginning. It was, it was the beginning. It wasn't the end. Because then, sooner or later, people began to write me from all over the world asking, would I be willing to do workshops on this? And, I would, and the first time was in England, and I said no. The second time was from, uh, from um, the United States, and I said no. And the third time, Tom Lennon, my dear friend, who's a senior student of Mr. Lee's, asked if I would come to Boulder, Colorado and do uh, a workshop. And, and he said to me, he said, before you say no, please remember that your guru always looked for three signs before he did anything uh, in relation to spiritual work. And uh, you've gotten already two signs, and you said, no, be very careful what you say. And uh, so I, I was forced to say yes, and that began what I call the intensives, which is a, a uh, weekend-long self-observation, self-remembering intensive with people in which we spend nine hours a day uh, together in very intense uh, work on self and it led to the second book, which is self-remembering. Uh, I had to write the second book because I remember Mr. Gurdjieff being furious with A.R. Oraj, his, his senior student, who he sent to America to prepare for the work to enter into America and for Mr. Gurdjieff to come to America. And when Gurdjieff got there, he was horrified because he saw that Oraj's mistake was he placed all his emphasis in the work on self-observation and none on self-remembering. And his, the famous story is that he demanded that all of Araj's students and all the groups he'd assembled immediately sign a letter disavowing any relationship with, with Araj and never, never being in relationship with him again. And the first one to sign that was Araj. And uh, so I, I didn't want to make a mistake of, of giving only half the practice because it's a single practice, you see, it's self-remembering, self-observation, one practice, two aspects. And the reason there's two aspects is because the being who we are, the being which resides in this body, is a being with two aspects, presence and attention. Self-remembering invokes presence. Self-observation invokes attention. So it's a single practice with two aspects to, to begin to develop those two aspects of the being who has come here to be ill-formed, half-formed, and by work on self, we can grow and mature. Yeah. So that's the story. Of, that's the story of how those books arrived. Now you give you give uh, self-remembering as step one before we can observe ourselves. First, we must remember ourselves. Now, just for our audience uh, to understand, what, what are the basic... Now, these books are available at Banyan or other bookstores, but you can buy it online at Banyan for anyone who's interested in this very foundational practice. No matter what path or lineage you're a part of, these are wonderful manuals with wonderful pointers from, from Red Hawk. And you, you, you these, give... You give, I think, five pointers as the basics for first stage self-remembering. First of all, self-remembering, self-observation are the 
foundational practices of every real spiritual practice that exists on the planet. They language by different names. For example, Jesus was a workmaster, that good master Jesus. And, and he, he called um, self-observation witnessing. Mm-hmm. And he gave his students a ritual so that they would, so that, that, that encoded self-remembering. This ye do in remembrance of me. This, this is my body. This is my blood. So the whole ritual of the, of the sacrament um, is, is, uh, is encoded teaching. Um, so the practice of presence begins with self-remember because how can I observe myself if I don't place myself in the present, in the body? If I don't remember myself, I can't observe myself. And so the first law of self-observation is no observation without sensation. That means if I want to observe myself, attention has to be moved consciously, intentionally, out of the head brain and into the body, and I recommend solar plexus abdominal area to place attention so that I am in contact with bodily sensation. That is, I am grounded Attention is grounded in the present. The body is a present phenomenon only. Sensing the breath. The breath is a, is a present phenomenon only. So the body exists, first of all, as a objective feedback mechanism to orient the being in the present so that it can begin to observe the self. So... Erect posture, <clears throat> we get that from Zen. Zen calls erect posture the awakened form. Conscious placement of attention, lower down in the body, below the neck. Sensing the breath, because the breath is always present and it helps remind me, it helps let me know if I'm present or not if I'm following the breath, not not controlling it, but following it. Sensing the whole body. If I can sense the whole body and at the same time stay with the breath, what happens is mind becomes still. Now I can relax the body and relaxed body is the signal to the divine that I am feminine receptive mode and that love can enter. So that's basic self-remembering. The second part is dividing the attention so that part of my attention is on what's going on inside, thoughts, emotions, tensions. The other part of the the attention is outside, aware of my surroundings and placing myself in those surroundings. And so the, the work gives us a rough approximation, 25% outside, 75% inside. So the weight of attention is always on sensation and breath and the body present. And 25% is outside. Most human beings, 100% is identified with what's going on outside 
or 100% is identified with the going on inside. And so I am identified either totally with what's going on in the dramas, psychodramas, or 100% identified with what's going on outside. They're raiding the Capitol. They, they, they are uh, marching in the streets and totally identified. And so there is no possibility of one growing or changing or, or, or maturing because I'm simply not present as I am, receiving as I am without judgment, without condemnation, without interference. I'm receiving energy. It passes in me, through me, and comes out a finer, transformed energy. And in this way, I, I become a food source for the earth and for those beings above me in scale, angelic beings, all the way up to our creator, goes on. Self-remembering. Yes. Then, then I can observe. And you use in the book, the second book, uh, Self-Remembering, The Path to Non-Judgmental -judge Love, you, you talk about the Enneagram, which is an ancient Sufi symbol, and Gurdjieff used it. And you talk about the law of three, which I found very helpful uh, with, with self, other, and the divine. Can you talk a little bit about that? All right. So the law of three is one of the fundamental creative forces that creates the universe. The work tells us that there are the law of seven and the law of three. The law of three simply is this. When there are two forces only, that is yes and no, they butt heads and there is no movement, there is no progress, there is no growth. And that's what we see in most of humanity is there's an, there's an affirming force, there's a denying force, and they are constantly at odds and going against one another and nothing moves and nothing changes. Um, so I'm going to digress a moment because Chandrik and I recently just watched 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. Kubrick's famous film. And one of the first images in that film is this a startling scene of apes in a band and, and eating and attacking another group of apes. And there is a, 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 a battle. And I looked at Chandrik and she looked at me and we said, nothing has changed. That's because <laughs> we don't know how to give space to the third force. So we have this yes in us and we have this no in us. And we're constantly moving identified with the yes or identified with the no. The no trying to change what I what I trying to change me myself and it, nothing I, I, and nothing changes. All right. So what is the third force? The third force is silent witness. If I can begin to observe the yes and the no and not go with the yes and not go with the no, but stay between them, still, actively still, allowing each one its energy. It allows those two forces, then those two very different energies to mingle, to mix, to join together. And, and the, the athenor, the beaker in which those two energies combine is attention, is self-observation. And then when they're allowed to combine without interference, a whole third finer energy is created, which one can experience if one is very still 
and very attentive and very sensitive, one can begin to sense this finer energy. And it, it comes back out of the body as, as, a, as a food source for the being. 25% stays to feed the being. 75% goes to feed the earth and all beings above us in scale. So we become a food, a conscious transformational instrument to receive energy and to transform it for its use by the being and by others. So literally what you're describing then is like the energy that moves through our system, we're, we're transforming it and some of it is, is moving downwards into the earth, feeding the earth, and some is, is being recycled upwards to the divine or the transcendent or the creator, and some is being recirculated to energize our own system. Exactly right. That's very well said. There is a divine descending love current which animates all life forms in all worlds in the universe. There is likewise in us an ascending force coming from the earth. Those two forces can't meet and join unless there is a catalyst. And we all know this from basic high school chemistry. There ha in order for two substances to unite and form a new substance, there has to be a catalyst. That catalyst is, is conscious attention, is, is self-observation. It allows those two very different energies to mingle and, and join and form a, a, new, a whole new thing, which we could call, some people call it um, love. Some call it Holy Spirit. Some call it uh, consciousness. Some call it um, by other names, uh, but compassion, um, kindness, etc. But a finer energy, which then manifests as kindness, generosity, forgiveness, compassion, all those higher virtues can only manifest in me if that finer energy is being transformed in me. Wonderful. And, and I, if, I, if I may just uh, fill in with two comments here and then ask you uh, to, to come back to me on them. Uh, one is all, everything that you're saying right now and in this book, you, you reiterate over and over again to verify, verify, verify in our own direct experience, not to take your word for it or anybody's word for anything, but anything that is true, we must be able to verify in our own experience. And on that- All right, now stop, stop right there now, stop okay. for a minute. You couldn't have said a more important thing, Ross. It's the most important thing in the book. Do not trust me, do not believe in me, do not take anything I say at face value. But if something resonates in you, if the heart, the being begins to resonate and vibrate at a certain level when, when uh, something is said or read, then um, that's when I must begin to verify for myself. I must experiment. I must investigate. I must try things out for myself and watch and see what happens and verify for myself, never taking anybody's word. It doesn't matter if it was a good master Jesus or my guru or anybody else. It, you know, something is said, it has a certain resonance in me, now my investigation begins. 
the only thing which prevents me from believing in, in lies, in falsehoods, is direct experience. So I become a, a, an explorer in the world of the unknown, and I test things out for myself. It's extremely important, because otherwise you get people who are led by liars, and they believe in those lies, and all kinds of violence results. Yes. My teacher, Yogacharini Maitre, likes to say, uh, we, with, with authentic practice, we become both the experiment and the experimenter. I like that so much. It's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better. Now, on, that, on this same note, uh, there's, there's something that I really appreciate about you and the way that you present these teachings and your, what you call radical honesty or radical self-honesty. Um, and I pulled, I found, there's very little about you that I could find online, but the best thing I found was this old article from 2017 where Sean Clancy from the, Arcan, from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette interviewed you, and that was on the Home Press website. And there's a quote I just grabbed a little piece of from one of your uh, friends and associate professors of English at the University of Arkansas, Monticello, Sarah Bloom, and she said, about you, he, Red Hawk, tells the truth in his poems and, and I think, and in, in your books on spiritual practice too. He tells the truth that he recognizes. Often he tells the truth about himself, no matter how bad it makes him look. And it's true in, in your books, you talk about all of your own, what you call blind spots or chief features. Um, and as a, it's so inspiring as a practitioner um, to see someone who's not only presenting a teaching, but also presenting the truth about all of their own flaws and all of the ups and downs of their own exploration of this practice. Can, how important is that for us as practitioners? Absolutely crucial. Nothing could be more important than A, I verify everything for myself, and B, I do not pretend, I do not lie about myself, I do not try to be what I'm not, but I say exactly what I see as I see it. And, and you know, <clears throat> because I'm in a certain position, given the books and the, and, the, and the intensives, people want to make a certain image of me, but that's very dangerous. I'm no guru. I'm no master. I'm no teacher. I'm a practitioner, just like you. I, and I'm a mechanic. Now, everybody knows a good mechanic has real value. Um, I'm a mechanic, and I say that because I study the machinery. My study and my whole life is based on studying the body. And that's where my sadhana is. It's a sadhana in the body uh, and, and of the body and through the body. So, so I am learning how this body works and how the different functions of the body, how the mind, the emotions, and the moving center all work together and how they also work apart and steal from each other and, and are disorganized. And so when I can be actively still and present and attention immersed in bodily sensation and in breath, then there is, it allows the centers to work in unison, in harmony, not stealing from one another. But I'm like you, I forget myself. 
and I do things which I wish I hadn't done, and then I have to make amends. And so, you know, ruthless self-honesty is the is is the law by which I write my poems. It's the law by which I wrote those books, and it's it's because of that law, ruthless self-honesty, that if the poems have any merit, that's their merit. Is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very refreshing. It's uh, very refreshing. Now, if I may uh, change gears a little bit, there's a, there's a question I wanted to ask. And, and if you're willing to humor me, uh, I, I'm very curious about, now we, we've talked a lot about your, your experience with your master, Lee Lozowick. Um, and I'm also curious, you, you said your root guru is Osho or Rajneesh. And I, I'm, yeah. I'm, of course, there's, you know, that uh, documentary came out, um, Wild Wild Country. And so there's a lot of people that have, I think, a lot of questions about uh, Osho. And I'm very just interested to hear what your experience was with him. And I think you spent a couple of years living at Rajneesh Puram in Oregon. That's correct. And if you look at that video, look for the fellow with the pink skull cap and the beard that's me oh really yeah there's one point where the mayor of rajneesh puram is being interviewed and uh you see me talking to him and he and i hugging uh i, I that pink cap appears at several points in the movie anyway uh, okay here's here's i can tell you several things uh, first of all um i don't ever make it my business what he was about or what Mahanam Sheila was about, none of my business. I went there to, to learn what my business was, to mind my business and to do my business. All right, so I went there as a, as a lazy man who avoided uh, physical labor whenever I could. I had worked in factories. Um, when I flunked out of college, I worked in the factory for a year and I paid all my own way through college. So I knew what hard work was, but I had a father who was a hopeless drunk and a mother who was a hopeless drunk. And my father was a violent, crazy, dangerous man. And he forced me to do labor, which I resisted with all my heart. For example, I had to mow the yard. And when I mowed the yard, I had to mow it two different directions. I mowed it one direction, then I had to mow it the opposite direction. Uh, so I had to do everything, the whole yard twice. And then he would come out and he would inspect. And uh, if, if there was anything wasn't to his liking, I would get a belt whipping. So this made me, of course, uh, you know, it's not a, not a good child rearing practice. Uh, it made me highly resistant to um, any authority of any kind. Yes. So I went to the ranch and Osho, <clears throat> I was on the big tent crew. We put up big tents for celebrations and, and for various other things. And then I was, uh, then I worked in the, in the after a while I worked in the uh, book and, and tape warehouse and on the uh, packing crew to set up the books and tapes all over the world. So we worked 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, no break. And I came to see the tremendous potential with hard work. And I became a hard worker. And from that point on, 
my life was hard work and I was willing to engage hard work as a teacher in the university, I was, I would outwork everyone. I would never stop working for my students. Osho gave me that. And I'm deeply grateful to him for that. He also gave me uh, this tremendously important teaching that when one is engaged in spiritual practice, one must leaven it with humor. He was, he told every day, riotous, stupid, terrible, wonderful, hilarious jokes. Uh, and he's, and he, he always used to say, be a joke unto yourself. Learn to laugh at yourself and learn to have humor. Humor is absolutely important. It's crucial. And people take them, we take, uh, I take myself too seriously. Of course, I'm full of self-importance. I'm a very self-important man. And so I'm a know-it-all and, and a, a man who always has to be right. And so to learn to laugh at those traits in myself is, is very, very Wonderful. Mm -hmm. On the note, of, thank you for that. Thank you. On, on the note of, of self-importance, when you and I were speaking on the phone uh, a while back, you mentioned to me that uh, your investigation of self-importance continues. That's something you're always looking into in yourself and studying. And Constantly. And you talked about currently, most recently, you've been looking into the re relationship between self-importance and reaction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, every single reaction that one has, period, is self-importance. End of teaching. <laughs> it's that simple, is it? It's just that simple and that obvious when one has the eyes to see. Look, this so-called self, this me, is composed of two things only. Identification and imagination. That's all this so-called me is. Identification and imagination. Every reaction is identification. So you're distinguishing uh, reaction from response. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Response is always with, reaction is always against. Hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Red Hawk, it's, it's, we're just over an hour and a half, and I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Uh, when it's been lovely. It's just, it's just lovely, Ross. I'm, I'm very grateful for your questions. Wonderful questions. Thoughtful. Thank you. And, and thank you for, for your enthusiasm and, and taking the time to speak with me. Um, and I, I really hope that uh, the Banyan audience and everyone who's here live today um, takes this all in and really benefits from it. And I, I highly recommend any of Red Hawk's books, um, whether it's on spiritual practice or his books of poetry, his, his new book, The Law of the Land, was published in 2020 by Obeyed Publishing in the U.S., and it's available. That's A-U-B, that's A-U-B-A-D-E publishing.com. Or the other books can be gotten from H-O-H-M homepress.com or from Banyan Books. Banyan will get all of them for you. And Banyan is an old, old bookstore. I know it very well. I've gotten books from Banyan in there. I really love supporting 
independent booksellers. Hey, Ross, I want to end with the last poem in the book. Can I do that? Absolutely. It's, this is the epilogue. It's called Man and His Machines. Across the street in the boneyard, I see a man with a backhoe digging a grave that he once dug by hand in four, five hours. Now, he is done in 20 minutes, and he isn't tired. His hands aren't calloused. He no longer works with his body. He doesn't get dirty. It is when a man works with a machine, works beyond what his body alone could do, that he becomes dangerous. Now he is able to bring mountains down and change the course of rivers to level whole forests and fish the oceans until they have nothing left to give. When a man had only his body to work with, he knew his limits and his place. He knew what time was by the seasons. But give a man a machine, and now he needs conscience and humility, or else he will do more harm than good. He will behave recklessly, smitten by a false sense of power, because he can fell a mighty cedar in less than an hour. With machine comes a great responsibility. Now a man must act from his inherent nobility, from a sense that all things have dignity and grace, or beauty disappears from the world without a trace. such a beautiful piece and so pertinent to this time. Red Hawk, thank you so much for being our guest today. And I wish you all the best in, in the wonderful work that you're doing. God bless you. God bless everyone who listens. Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar is, is a source for me and Yoga Chirini Maitreyi for you. And they are one and the same, different names, same source. been listening to In Conversation, a podcast with Banyan Books and Sound.